We are in 2 John. We're finishing that up. I'm going to turn there myself. And, Lord willing, and the saints don't rise, Rick will be back this Sunday. Yeah. So just if, if you think of Rick and his family, just pray that this last week they have is really rich in their rest, refreshment, because um, as I've learned from Les, a fellowship deserves a well-rested shepherd, and we want them well-rested. Well so 2 John, let's pick up. Actually, let me, let me intro with this. Last Sunday, we saw truth and love are inextricably bound to one another. You can't separate them. Love without truth isn't real. Truth without love, brutal, merciless. You cannot have love without truth and vice versa. Truth without love is merciless. Love without truth is empty, ineffective. God is love, 1 John 4, 8, which means God defines love, not the other way around. Jesus is truth, John 14, 6. Jesus defines truth. Without accepting and abiding in him, we are prey to being deceived by deluded disciples who preach and promote doctrines of demons without love and truth. John wrote this letter to a church fellowship out of a true love for their well-being. We see in 2 John verse one. To comfort them with the truth of God's love, verses two through three, and to reaffirm their faith in the truth of love. That's the whole letter. The reason for this, as we're going to see, follows in the rest of this letter. But before we get to verse seven, I think we need to just recap over verses five through six. So would you look at verse five and six with me? He writes, now I ask you, lady, not as though writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning that you should walk in it. So John just finishes up here before we get into verse seven, urging the saints in verse five to love one another. He defines this love in verse six. What does it mean? What does it look like to love one another? To walk according to his commandments. To walk according to means to literally live your life ordered and in sync with. So I want to ask us a question as we continue this morning. What is your life in sync with? What's the tune that your life marches to? Does what I listen to, music, podcasts, gaming, friends, does that feed my faith in him? Music, podcasts, I'm sorry, yeah, and, and friends. Does what I listen to feed my faith in Jesus? Secondly, does what I watch, TV, Movies, I'm gonna say it again, gaming, social media, does it distract from or diminish or even distort what Jesus teaches? What orders your life? What do you live in sync with? The Apostle Paul, not ignorant of Satan's schemes, urged the Corinthian church to reaffirm their love, to reaffirm their love, 
for a fallen brother and restore him back into fellowship so that, and, and he says this in 2 Corinthians 2.11, so that there would not be an opportunity for Satan to take advantage of because Paul was keen and wise on Satan's schemes. We'll touch back on that later. God's love, though, turns the sinner from error, corrects, brings the sinner in line with him. Christ centers the sinner on him. God's love does this, James 5, 22. His love covers a multitude of sins. And we need to remember that because it's interesting in Revelation 2, while John Actually, Jesus is speaking to the church in Ephesus. He praises them for how they are. Man, they are sticking to the truth. But he has this one thing against them. They've left their first love. They didn't tolerate the work of the Nicolaitans, which, again, we're going to look at some more this morning. But they left their first love. And he says, basically, repent. Get back on track. Get back into true love, or I'm going to take my lampstand from you. What does that mean? Go listen online. But all that to say, yeah, you can listen to Rick's teaching on that. <clears throat> 1 Peter 4.8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. We see Jesus perfectly practice this with Peter. Peter was just, he's given up. He went back to the old life of fisherman. And Jesus meets him in Galilee, just like he promised in advance, because remember, love is truth. What Jesus says is true. So the love of Jesus is based in his truth, who he is. He promises that, he meets up, he rendezvous with the guys back in the Galilee, and he, in front of their inner circle of 12, redeems and restores Peter for Peter's sake and for the sake of their fellowship. Everyone, gentlemen, brothers, this brother here is restored in my name according to my desire. So no one gets to condemn him. Love covers a multitude of sins. All to say the truth of God's love protects us against deception and destruction. Are you ignorant of? Or, as I've seen in my own life, maybe even willfully ignoring the schemes of Satan? Oh. As I've heard it said, we're not supposed to live our lives looking for a demon under every bush. But know this, that our, our, our battle's not against flesh and blood, right? It's against the principalities. It's against the prince of the power of the air, the darkness that is manipulating and puppeteering what we see happening in our world. The lawlessness we see at work in our cities, ultimately, that's not because of the people. Or th throw out any big name you know. I'll, I'll throw out a couple. I know a lot of you are going to get triggered when I say this. The globalists, Klaus Schwab, these folks. At the end of the day, they're just puppets. They're just people. Our battle ultimately is not against them. Are we keen on, are we aware of Satan's schemes? I ask us this question because John writes to this church to reaffirm this fellowship's love in the truth of God so that they're not ignorant, that they're not unaware of Satan's schemes. Look at verse seven with me, would you? And we'll read the rest of this letter. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, 
but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. John's getting pretty stern there. For the one, or in other words, because the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Though I have many things to write to you, I do not want to with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face so that your joy may be made full. The children of your chosen sister greet you. Walking according to Jesus Christ's commandments lets the truth of Jesus, who is the love of God, protect us from Satan's schemes, demonic deceptions, and deluded disciples. And that is what John is referring to here. There are some so-called disciples of Christ that are deluded. They've deluded themselves with doctrines of demons. And the concern here is they're in their midst, wolves in sheep's clothing. Look at verse seven with me. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. First point here, discerning deception in doctrine. Discerning deception in doctrine. Triple D. I see two satanic schemes that John is referring to here in this verse. Maybe you see more, but these are the two I see. Number one, Gnosticism. Gnosticism. The Gnostics of the ancient world believed and preached another Jesus, a different Jesus, and therefore a fake Jesus from the one revealed in Scripture. Paul wrote in Galatians 1, 6 through 7, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. I had a young man who came into our high school group. He came chasing one of our high school girls. She told me about him. We prayed for him. And then one, one week she said, hey, I think he's gonna come to youth group with me. I told him if he wants to get to know me, he's gonna have to come to youth group. I'm like, girls, keep that in mind. You wanna get to know me? Here, let me introduce you to Jesus. So he starts coming. He gets the picture pretty quickly. She's not interested, but he keeps coming. And uh, over the course, he graduated from his senior year, but over the course of the summer, he and I were meeting once a week. Long story short, while I was gone, um, had a brother really zealous to, to lead this young man to Christ. And what I'd heard is he had done so, and then he wanted to get baptized. I got to baptize him right there in that baptistry. He did something strange, though. I, he was a taller guy, and I, I went back too far, and so I couldn't get him all the way into the water. Just a part of his head didn't go under. Big deal, right? That was a big deal to him. <laughs> I remember we got out, and after this was at the end of second service, he went back over and like dunked his head in. You know, gotta, gotta get it all. I was like, all right, all right, Kevin. Um, and then fall came. I didn't see him as often. Month goes by, kind of goes radio silent. We show up, and I'm like, hey, man, I missed you. Where, where you been? How you doing? And he's kind of sheepish and. Um, he comes clean and says uh, he met a girl. And I go, oh, okay. Turns out this girl <clears throat> is from the Mormon church. And I go, oh, okay. 
and we start talking about that. And uh, he hears me, acknowledges, I'm kind of concerned. Month goes by, I don't hear from him again. I hear from him again, we get together, and I'm able to pull out from him as we're talking that he's not only seen this girl, but she's invited a couple missionaries from the Mormon church to the house. They've started to come visit him, and I warn him. This is actually one of the passages I read there in 1 Galatians 6. Don't bring them in your house, bro. Don't entertain this. One, you're new in the faith. You're not adequately equipped for this. Two, more importantly, this is what God's word says. He acknowledges that time goes on. Long story short, he's not with us anymore. He wasn't with us, and then he went out from us. And it, it makes me really sad. It grieves me every time I think about him. Whenever we think about, read about things like this in scripture, he's one of the faces that comes to mind. Fortunately, so long as he's got breath in his lungs, it's not too late. But this is what, this is what Paul is, or I'm sorry, John is talking about, writing to the church. Notice, remember this, the Jesus of Islam, the Jesus of Mormonism, the Jesus of Jehovah's Witness, the Jesus of Scientology is not the Jesus of Scripture. Islam teaches that Jesus is not God in flesh. John 1.14 begs to differ. Mormons teach Jesus and Lucifer, if you didn't know this, Lucifer was his name before he became known as Satan. Mormonism teaches their brothers. Jesus and, and Satan are spiritual brothers. They go back. John 1, 1 through 5 makes it plainly clear that is not the case. That's what scripture teaches. They're not related. Jehovah Witnesses deny Jesus' equality with the Father. But Hebrews 1, 3 and Matthew 22, 41 through 46 say very contradictory to that. That's what God's word says. Another one, a kid I went to high school with, we ended up crossing paths again years later in college, and we're talking, and, and I'm out there on the campus intentionally trying to start spiritual conversations up with people. I see him, I'm like, oh, hey, and he asks me what I'm doing, and we kind of start talking, and I start to realize he believes in Jesus, but he doesn't believe that Jesus is equal with God. And I'm like, huh? He is God, but he's not? And I'm like, what is this? And... Here's a good story. Got his contact info. I did some more reading from here and emailed him all these passages. Hebrews 1 was one of them. And he came out of that, which was awesome, which was great. All this to say, we're looking at, you know, we're talking about what we see with Islam, Jehovah's Witness, Mormons. They teach a different Jesus. They come preaching a different good news. Similarly, the Gnostics taught a distorted version of the Jesus from Scripture. Gnosticism, you Bible students know, comes from the word gnosko, which means to know. These ancient Gnostics believe themselves to be spiritually enlightened. There's a lot of that, more and more these days, especially here in the Northwest, the Northeast of the United States. Very spiritual, but don't confuse that with godliness. And there's a lie that's getting louder and perpetrating the hearts and minds of younger generations in this country, espousing a spirituality that is totally devoid of Jesus. These Gnostics were know-it-alls. The Gnosticism that John is likely referring to here came in two forms, the Nicolaitans and the Serinthians. First, the Nicolaitans. 
The Nicolaitans preached and practiced coexistence. It was an ancient form of coexistence. That's what it was. They mixed worship of Jesus with pagan practices. We're seeing that. We're seeing that happen in the church, at least in the West, here in this country as well. It was motivated by greed. There was money behind it. That was a motivating factor. They preached and promoted eating food offered to idols, which is why Paul writes, don't eat food offered to idols. Don't take part in the table of demons. They also preached partaking in sexual immorality. And they taught what 2 Peter 2 talks about, Revelation chapter 2 talks about, and Numbers 31 verse 16 explains, they taught the way of Balaam. Now again, we're not gonna get into what is the way of Balaam. Those are the verses up there. Wow, there's a lot. Don't worry. We'll go through that pretty quick. I think you might already notice we're moving through it pretty fast. So the Nicolaitans, that's what's happening. That's one form that's happening that is assaulting, that is influencing, trying to infect the church. Irenaeus, <clears throat> a spiritual apprentice of one of John's two protégés. So John had two guys that he intentionally, personally mentored, raised up in Christ. Polycarp, that name, and Ignatius. Irenaeus is the third guy, the third generation down. He's the third generation from Christ, right? So you got John, these two, Ignatius and Polycarp, and then Irenaeus. Irenaeus wrote this warning against Serinthianism. This is the second one, the Serinthian philosophy. It's a heresy, he writes, taught by Serinthus, who died approximately around A.D. 100, and it stated that, quote, the Christ came upon Jesus at his baptism and left him just prior to his crucifixion. Because that's one thing about the Gnostics. They separate the flesh, the, I should say the material world from the spiritual. So whatever you do in the physical matter world, doesn't matter, it's irrelevant. So eat, drink, be merry, do all kinds of heinous sin, because it doesn't affect you spiritually, right? And I've heard people say, well, I believe Jesus in my heart. In Romans 12, Paul writes to the church in Rome that in order to, to serve Jesus, serve the Lord with a spiritual act of service is to live it out with your body. Well, they taught a heresy, contradiction to that. They taught that Christ and Jesus are separate beings. Now, this is important to understand. If you, didn't hear, if you haven't heard this before, it's important as I'm gonna show here in just a second. They taught that Jesus was born naturally without the virgin birth. He's a regular guy. Really good guy, but a regular guy. That's ancient history, right? No one teaches that. A guy named Richard Rohr, a former Franciscan priest who has personally mentored people like Rob Bell, Oprah Winfrey, teaches this very lie to this day. He teaches, quote, the universal Christ. Really, Christ is in everything. It's new age stuff. Those who don't, John writes, those who don't acknowledge Jesus Christ coming in the flesh are deceivers and are used by the spirit of the Antichrist. He says, this is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Side note, Antichrist isn't the absolute opposite. Well, it is, but it isn't. We think Antichrist, we think big, scary, spiritual boogeyman. 
The Antichrist isn't effective because he comes out and shows his true colors. He's effective because he sounds and looks really close to the truth. Anti literally means in place of. He's a counterfeit. What are these Gnostics teaching? A counterfeit gospel. How do you trick people? By telling them 99% truth, eh, 1% not. That's how deception works. That's why it's deceitful. It's tricky. Those who don't acknowledge Jesus Christ coming in the flesh are deceivers and in league with the Antichrist, the spirit of the Antichrist. Pastor Chuck Smith wrote in his book, Living Water, denial of the Trinity always brings the denial of the divinity or the deity of Jesus Christ. Trevor and I just read that this last week. That's big. And the personality of the Holy Spirit. If you deny the deity of Jesus, 100% God, 100% man, if you break his nature, his character down, the Holy Spirit comes right after that. You won't walk in the power of the Spirit. You, you totally nullify the nature and character of God. The, the second satanic scheme that I see here goes beyond the distortion of Jesus. This pollution of purity was from within the church itself. So it wasn't just false teaching. It was false teaching among their own members, people that they would assume, oh yeah, brother, sister. There were spiritual moles in the church. You put it that way. Many deceivers have gone out. The New Bible Commentary points out that this implies that at one time they had been members of the body of Christ. That's, that's the sinister nature of Satan. He's tricky. He doesn't play fair. 1 John 2.19, John wrote, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. They would have remained. Another word for that is abide. They would have abided with us. They would have remained. So some people have asked this question. You start to get into Calvinism and Arminianism, and I don't see those definitions in the Bible. So let's not muddy the waters. People wonder, if saved, always saved, can you lose your salvation? John makes it clear. If saved... Always saved. Once saved, always saved. The question is, is the person truly saved? Well, there's no substitution for mileage. Today, in, in, in the church, like places in China, someone comes and says, I'm a brother. They don't just go, hey. They're not rude. They're not inhospitable. But they're not foolish. They're not stupid either. And they give time to watch this person's behavior. And when they see someone actually go through persecution and suffer for the name of Jesus, then they go, okay, now we can buy what you're saying. I think that's, that's one of the, the maybe the, the challenges that we have here in the West is it's really hard sometimes to tell, tell the real deal from the fake one. What kind of suffering do we go through? Persecution prunes that out. Jesus warned about these wolves in Matthew 7, 15. And Paul prophesied this. He promised this prophetically in Acts 20, 29. I know that after my departure, 
savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. It's why as disciples of Christ, it is absolutely vital that we walk with the discernment of the word of God and the spirit of God. It's easy to defend against the wolves of the world, but Satan doesn't play fair. He doesn't play nice. He's a liar and he's a deceiver. He's a trickster. That's why he's good at what he does. He knows the best way to beat the church is to appear like you're part of the church. I, <laughs> it was interesting seeing this. I don't know where Mike Tyson stands with Jesus, but I saw this online this last week and he was, it was a clip of him interviewing, I think, um, another well-known fighter. He used to be in the UFC. I can't pronounce his name because he's from Nigeria. But the guy's got like anvils for fists. One of the hardest, if not the hardest, puncher ever recorded in at least UFC history. And they're, they're talking and Tyson talks to him and he says, you need to have faith. And I'm like, oh, what kind of faith? And he starts to actually say, you need to have faith in, I think he says Jesus. He says, because you're not smarter than the devil, man. And Francis is the guy's first name. He kind of smiles. He's like, Tyson just keeps drilling it. He's like, he knows you. He knows how to play you. Satan knows how to play us as people. They've been studying us since God created us. Think about that. You have an enemy that has been studying you day and night, every moment for all of human history. That is, that's quite a foe. That's quite an opponent which is why we need God's word and we need his spirit. His spirit to guide us in truth. His spirit to empower us to share, to, to share our faith in Jesus. His, his spirit to do everything that we read about Jesus promising in scripture. We need his spirit. His Holy Spirit isn't just a nice sidekick. Without the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, we're up a creek without a paddle. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, Paul writes, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. The church in Corinth was, was dealing with these, quote, super apostles. And they came in, prim, they, man, they were charlatans, man. They, they knew how to, to play the strings of the Corinthian hearts. And they looked really good. They looked official, and they were even gleaning money from the Corinthian church. And Paul is addressing this issue. He says, I didn't come taking anything from you. Would you believe me more? Would I have more noble standing if I did take money from you? Like, what does it take? Guys, you know me. You know the message of the gospel. Don't forsake these and don't accept these. He goes on in verse 14, no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. This just comes to mind. I just want to throw this out. God has made really clear who is sovereign over this planet, and he created an environment for us to live in, to thrive in. He didn't create us to become subservient to the environment. 
Jesus was not an environmentalist. That does not mean we need to trash what he's given us. But the reason I bring that up is that's a new gospel that I'm hearing. And there are churches that are embracing this. If you go back and, again, you read the word in Genesis, God makes it really clear. He gave us the dominion of this planet to care for and to cultivate, to care for the living creatures, great and small, and to cultivate. So all this, I'm gonna say it, garbage about trying to leave, to, to leave a less, uh, to diminish our impact on the environment, actually, if you start to really part and parcel it out, I think it's a doctrine of demons. I think it's a deception. I won't go down that road anymore. Our values must align with his. If your values don't align with his, you and I are prey to deception. This is why John emphasized the truth in love of Jesus Christ. 1 John 4, 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you've heard that is coming, and now it is already in the world. Once Jesus did his work on the cross, Satan went, whoa, game change. See, for as intelligent as Satan is and his workers of unrighteousness, they're not God. So then when God you know, ups the ante, so to speak, he goes, oh, I gotta, I gotta change my game. It did not take Satan hardly any time to start trying to co-opt the gospel and distort who Jesus is. Again, can't beat them. Look like you join them. Here's the second point as we get into verse eight. Watch your work. Verse eight. Watch your work. He says, watch yourselves. <laughs> watch yourself. That you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. John warns them to stay on guard always with a spiritual, watchful eye. You think about that, and you're like, man, that's exhausting. How do I do that? 1 Peter 1.13, prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds for action. That's why they send recruits into boot camp. They don't take you like, well, I went to the army, reception battalion. They don't give you your GI and then send you out expecting you to know what to do. Then they take months of training, right, Chad? They take months to train you into a soldier, a sailor, a warrior, a fighter. You have to prepare your minds for action. That means you have to do work before the battle comes. Keep sober in spirit, which implies you're already sober. If you've received the gospel of Jesus, you're sober in spirit. And it doesn't mean, I should point this out, it doesn't just mean alcohol. Is there anything that dilutes, dissipates, distorts, diminishes the deity of Jesus, the divinity of the Trinity? Is there anything that lulls us? I'll point this one out. More and more people are staying up late, late hours scrolling the screen. I have done it more times than I care to recount. What does that do? Well, you get tired. Keep sober in spirit. Prepare your minds for action. The night of Jesus' betrayal, he called his guys into the garden to pray with him. And it says he called them to pray with him so that they would not fall into temptation for their sake. And he, he wakes them up. He goes, boys, guys, brothers, 
The heart is willing, but the flesh is weak. When we get into the soul, it's not long before the flesh takes over. And once you go down that route, ugly things happen. We saw all of Jesus' closest guys abandoned him, left him high and dry. Fortunately, we don't have a savior that depends on us because he had prepared. He is sober. He goes on in 1 Peter 1.13, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you. And I think that's, one, that's another ploy of the enemy, especially in our culture. We've been lulled into sleep because of the comforts of this Western life. And years back when the fellowship used to meet in uh, the Gilmore's barn, we had a brother come, Brother John, who was uh, an evangelist and a, he was someone who was helping build the church in China. He was based in Hong Kong, back when Hong Kong was still you know, a better place to be. And he came and he spoke and he said, I want you guys to know something. Your brothers and sisters in China are praying that you go through persecution. We're praying that hard times come because we know and we've experienced as a church in China how persecution makes the church strong, vibrant. It's not comfortable. It's not pleasant. But what happens when life gets easy? We start to put our hope on other things instead of the revelation of Jesus Christ. A mind girded with the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word, Ephesians 6.14, is always ready even for unpredictable moments. How do, you, how do you prepare for the unpredictable? You prepare your mind in advance. That's what Jesus did in Matthew 4. I'll, I'll never forget it. Never realized this. Rick took us through it. And you read Matthew 4 and you see all the passages Jesus quotes. It's all out of Deuteronomy. What was Jesus doing before he was confronted with Satan tempting him? He was meditating in the word. All of his responses were out of God's word. In context, rightly applied. The, the, the loins of Jesus' mind were prepared for action. And man, he needed his spirit strong. Because after 40 days, your body literally starts to eat itself. Day 35, your organs are starting to shut down. I can't imagine the excruciating pain, literally, Jesus' body was feeling. But he had prepared his mind, his soul, for action because it was being led by the Spirit, which is who actually led him into the wilderness in the first place. Really fascinating. Jesus comes up out of the water being baptized. The Spirit comes upon him in power, and he doesn't go out guns a-slinging through the Galilee. It says, we always talk about this, the Spirit leads the sons of God. Ladies, that's you too, position. Again, teaching for another time. But it says the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness drove him into peril, drove him into starvation. That's another problem I've seen in the church. And I, again, something that I've fallen to a little bit, clearly not fallen completely into because I still have this very girlish figure. But the point is, there's so much emphasis in the church, you know, healthiness is next to godliness. No, we need to take care of our body. We need to honor it. But the Spirit of God drove Jesus into the wilderness where his body was starved of what we would call essential. But remember, in John chapter four, that's not up there, but he's at the well with a woman, 
and we know the story. He's talking with a Samaritan woman. She realizes, I've met the Messiah. She goes into town, tells all of her peeps, and his boys come back. Jesus, we got your food. You got to eat. And Jesus says, I have a food you don't know about. My food is to do the will of my Father. When we sustain ourselves on the will of the Father, it fulfills and supernaturally strengthens us. That was all for free. So, Peter exhorts us to keep our hope completely on what? The grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's Christ's return. The way verse seven reads isn't that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. And this stood out to me because I went ahead and took the cliff notes and listened a little bit to Rick's teaching. And I went, oh, that's a good point. I got, I got to say that again. Coming. It's not that he came in the flesh. Comes in the flesh. Coming in the flesh. Scripture, everyone, literally teaches a literal rapture. Scripture teaches that. And the early church, people say, oh, you pre-tribbers, all that. That's a new thing. No, it's not. Go read the works of Irenaeus and Polycarp and Ignatius. And so much of what they said is part and parcel in line with what, like they, they, they match up what they're teaching with what John had taught them. The apostle of Jesus. This isn't a new theology. This is just the truth. The early church taught that Jesus himself said he would physically return. He came physically the first time. Jesus was bodily resurrected, which is why he asked his disciples when he showed up in that room, do you have something to eat and something to drink? To show them, I am physically here. I'm not some ghost. I'm fully resurrected. And he taught, Jesus taught, he's coming back in the flesh. There are whole congregations who neglect, avoid, and even argue against the rapture of the church and the physical return of Christ to rule and reign. John says, coming in the flesh. That's important because that's what God teaches. So, John says, so that you do not lose what we've accomplished there in verse eight, that you may receive a full reward. He's not talking about the reward of salvation, but losing out on receiving the full reward of the gospel work. You guys remember Super Bowl 27, right? I do, surprisingly enough, because, because the Cowboys were all that in a bag of chips in the early 90s. My poor Buffalo Bills. I, I, as a kid, ended up liking the Buffalo Bills. They had a defensive end named Bruce Smith. Guy was a beast. Jim Kelly, awesome quarterback. This team should have won multiple Super Bowls. Instead, they're the only team to go to the Super Bowl back to back to back four times in a row and lose the Super Bowl. Heartbreaking. <laughs> like, wow. Well, Super Bowl 27, 1993, the Cowboys humiliated the Bills with a 52 to 17 victory. But it could have been a 59 to 17 win if defensive tackle Leon Lett hadn't celebrated too early. Lett was five yards from the end zone. Big dude. He grabbed the fumble. He's about to convert this fumble recovery into a touchdown. And he slows down, puts the ball out because he's, you know, puffing himself up. And Don Beebe, little itty-bitty white dude, boom, he's the fastest guy on their team. Wide receiver comes up and catches him and knocks the ball out. That's what I loved about the heart of the Buffalo Bills. Side note really quick. These guys had heart, and they didn't give up. 
They went to the end. They lost 52 to 17, but they weren't going to let it be 59 to 17. <laughs> yeah, no, but seriously. The, the reason I bring it up, John says, don't lose what we've accomplished so that you may receive a full reward. Leon let up too soon. That's for you, Rick. You get that? Leon let, he let up. Anyway, I'm not very good at this pun stuff. He let up too soon and he lost the reward of the touchdown. For a defensive tackle to not only recover a fumble but then to run it into the end zone, man, that stuff doesn't come every day. You, you might not ever see that in your career. And he lost that opportunity. Don't lose heart of doing good. Run, sprint through the finish. Second Thessalonians 3.13. Do not grow weary and lose heart of doing good. I look at a fellowship here first service, most of whom are older than me. Most of whom are either old enough to be my parents or my grandparents. And I want to urge you and... That wasn't a joke. Hear me out. I want to urge and encourage you to finish strong. I've said this as a joke, but there's a truth behind it. Less, less is full-blown white, been full-blown white for some time. Of course, he's full-blown white, and I'm like skin color more and more. At least he's got all his hair. But I remember for years, I'm like, I know that he, my brother's in his 80s here, but the guy's got a, the spirit of a 20-year-old in his heart, right? And that inspires and motivates younger guys like myself. But that's not, this is not just to, you know, senior saints as some call them. This is to all of us. This is to me as well. Because he's not talking about the age. He's talking about holding true, holding fast to the confession of our faith. Hebrews 10, 23. Hold fast. Don't lose your reward. Don't lose heart of doing good. And don't allow or take part in things that will diminish or destroy all your service to the Lord. How many stories have we heard of people, notable, unfortunately, I'll call them celebrities in the church, ripping and roaring, and there have been so many people who have been saved through the ministry that they've been a part of, but then they fall because of moral failing. And fortunately, there are many stories, and this doesn't usually get covered, of repentance, and they come around, which is why Paul writes to the church in Corinth in chapter two, you need to restore this brother. I wrote about him in 1 Corinthians 5, and you cannot tolerate what he's doing. Don't let this kind of immorality take place in your church. But in 2 Corinthians chapter two, he comes back to them and says, guys, you've done a good job. You need to restore him back. Just in the same way that Jesus restored Peter. Otherwise, you guys will fall prey to the deception of demons. We've seen that in the church. There's a church like Ephesus that holds true to the doctrine of God but they don't love this brother or sister back into restoration. That leaves an empty gap, a chink in the armor, as you, if you will, for the devil and his minions to work on us. Polycarp, we're talking about finishing strong, don't lose what we've accomplished. Polycarp, again, one of John's two protégés, didn't end his days in retirement. And he didn't deviate from his passion for the truth and love of God long after his mentor, John, had passed away. In his 80s, and you can read about this in Fox's Book of Martyrs, in his 80s, Polycarp persevered in a city called Pergamus, Pergamum. These Roman soldiers come and knock on his door and they come 
you know, saying, hey, look, you need to do your due and worship, you know, you haven't paid your, your worship to, it was either emperor worship or it was pagan worship. And Polycarp in his 80s didn't take out his cane and start beating the guys. He was gentle, but he was very truthful and he didn't budge or sway. He said, I can't. They said, well, we have to arrest you. Here's the cool part. Before they arrested him, he invited them into his house and fed them. Can you imagine how conflicted these Roman soldiers were? Like, man, we're supposed to arrest him, but this guy, this is a sweet old guy. But they have to follow orders. They take him to the city. Consular gives him another opportunity. And Polycarp says something to the extent of, um, Jesus has been faithful to me these 85 years. How can I not be faithful to him? And he wouldn't renounce. And the Roman soldiers are like, come on, we're doing you a favor. Just do what you got to and live. We, we think you're great. Don't give up life on something this stupid and foolish. And John, Polycarp says, this isn't stupid. This isn't foolish. This is the truth. And if I give up on the truth, is, was it true? And what kind of testimony is that going to leave for others that I've shared Jesus with? Poly went, Polycarp went down, or rather up. So they tied him to a stake. They attempted to burn him alive, but a lot like his, his mentor before him, who the Roman government tried to boil alive in oil, John, the oil wouldn't burn him. Kind of like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, the flames wouldn't touch Polycarp. It's recorded. They're watching it. Polycarp is singing hymns, and the flames aren't touching him. They're tired of hearing the hymns. They're tired of this Jesus, because as gentle and and loving as this, this old man is, man, his defiance has just gone too far. And one of the guys runs him through, either a sword or a spear. And it's his own blood that extinguishes the fire of the persecution. I just saw you, Katie. Hi, Katie. <laughs> guys, it's, it's stirring to me when people hold fast to the truth. And it's interesting, again, why has the church in places like China and Iran grown so fast? It's because they haven't deviated from the truth. And when the persecution and the trials came, they held fast to the confession of their hope in Jesus Christ. And the church has grown. Look at verse nine with me. Here's your third point. Accepting lies versus abiding in truth. Accepting lies versus abiding in truth. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. This is why God says repeatedly to not add to what he's already said. God commanded Moses in, to Israel in Deuteronomy 12, 32, whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from it. Again, he says to Solomon, who is the king of Israel, Proverbs 35, every word of God is tested, it's proven, he is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will reprove you and you will be proved a liar. Take refuge in the person and the teachings of Jesus and he will guide you. He will protect you. You don't have to protect yourself. He is your guard. He is your shield. Jesus told John in Revelation twenty two eighteen. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, speaking of Revelation. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this prophecy, God will take away his part 
from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. If the message is new about Jesus, it isn't true. If it's new, it isn't true. Rick has said that, Les has said that. I think the first time I know it started, Chuck Smith back in, you know, kind of the, the forerunner of the Calvary Chapel churches said that. If it's new, it isn't true. John Corson, if you like John Corson, he said that. This is Jesus revealed in here, in the scriptures. If you hear something or read something that doesn't match this, burn that thing, walk away, run away, get rid of it, put it out of your midst. Well, there's some really good things in it. Yeah. But I've said this before, and I tested our high school students with this one time. If I gave you brownies, think of the best cook in the world. They made you brownies. And then as you're chewing on the first one, they say, oh, by the way, I had a little mishap, and some of what my dog did in the yard ended up in the mix. Don't ask me about it, kind of weird, but you won't taste it. It's still the same brownie recipe. We would spit it out. Many of us would start throwing up. If you have Ipecac in your kitchen, you'd probably start drinking that. That's wrong, that's vile. Don't pollute your faith. I, I will run the air of polluting, mixing my relationship with Jesus based on Jesus' teachings if I start adopting certain practices from the world. That was the problem with the early church. That's what John is writing about here. The Lord repeats over and over in Jeremiah 6, 16, 18, 15, Malachi 4, 4, and Luke 16, 29 to return to the ancient paths of God. God's ways and our worship are not mystical. They're not complex. John refers to the church as children. You don't teach complicated things to children. And the cool thing is, I love it. When you talk with kids, if you haven't volunteered in children's, I'd encourage you to. If nothing else, it's just a trip. Because when you start to talk about interesting spiritual things, Grace is smiling. She's like, yeah. She's had some experiences the last couple of months talking with these kids, and they ask these profound questions, and you're like, how do I answer this? And then you give them a simple answer, and they go, okay. <laughs> they get it. The heart of a child. Jesus isn't complicated to his children. 2 Corinthians 11.3, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. If it's complicated, there's a good chance it's not Christ. The beauty of God isn't complicated or mysterious. The beauty of God is clear and made manifest. John 8, 31, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, or who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Jesus is the truth, John 14, 6, and he came to set us free, Galatians 5, 1. Side note, not written down. If there's something that you're holding on to, that you have repented, you've talked with the Lord, you may have prayed with other brothers and sisters, repenting from something you did in your past, if you've done that, you don't have to do it anymore. If Jesus Christ has forgiven you, what right do you and I have to hold it against you? And it's not about, let me make this clear, it's not about, I gotta forgive myself. No, I can't forgive myself. What I can do, though, is receive the forgiveness of Jesus. And if he's 
forgiven me, and then I keep wallowing in it, that's an insult to his grace and mercy. Jesus came to set us free for freedom's sake. Galatians 5.1. One more thing on this. John encourages them to abide in Christ's teaching. That word means to remain. It means to stay. And it's the picture of dwelling, living. I abide with my wife and kids. I didn't say your name, so I can't pay you. I abide with my family. To dwell means to live there. Dwelling isn't a few times a week. Wouldn't that be weird if you dropped by our house and you found out, yeah, Jake only lives, lives at home with his family like four days out of the week, which is more than half. What does he do the other time? Camps out in his car. Sometimes he'll pass out in the park somewhere in Anacortes. <laughs> You'd probably be knocking on Rick and Les's door. We gotta talk about Jake. <laughs> Because that's not what it means to abide. Dwelling isn't a few times a week. It's all the time. And I want to make this clear, because I thought this for years. Abiding in Jesus doesn't mean reading your Bible every waking moment. And it doesn't mean praying with folded hands every spare second. David sings this constantly in the Psalms. Psalm 119.48. And I will lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. I'm gonna call you out, bro. I apologize in advance because I know you don't like attention, but you come to mind, so maybe it's the Lord. But I get emails all the time from Roy about the things that the Lord's showing him or impressing on his heart. And he wants to share it. Roy meditates on the Lord's statutes, he loves his commandments. I just got something in my email inbox from him about, you know, do we teach kids the compassion of Christ? They see it in youth ministry, but do we ever sit down and explain what the compassion of Christ is? He meditates. We need to meditate. And Jesus does say, pray without ceasing, but it's a conversation, right? I don't have to get formal every time I talk with my wife. It's an ongoing conversation. Is your prayer with Jesus an ongoing conversation? Verse 10, John writes, if anyone comes to you and doesn't bring this teaching, the teaching is Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. If he doesn't bring this teaching, do not receive him into house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. That, some of you are like, wait a minute. What about the Mormons that come to my door? You open the door, oh, you got a tie and white shirt, wham. Sorry, I can't greet you. It's not what he's talking about. We also have to remember when John wrote this, most churches met out of homes. Now, that doesn't totally free us of any responsibility when someone comes to our door with a official teaching that is in contradiction to scripture. There's a right way to handle that. But he, the context here is he's speaking to the church. Something hit me while I was studying this passage, though, and I want to float it out to you, and I'm going to ask, if you're interested, to test this, and you're going to test it by reading the Scripture. And at the end, I'm going to tell you, it's a theory. There's no way to prove this. But to me, it opened up a greater nuance to what John is writing here, and the application is very true. But again, don't take it because I'm saying it. Consider it according to God's Word. 
I wonder if this chosen lady wasn't the church of Pergamum. I was laying on my couch. Sometimes I've learned, I'm like, scoot the laptop away, put the Bible down, lay down on the couch. Take your phone and chuck it far away and just meditate on this for a little bit. I need a rest for my eyes and quite honestly, sometimes the Lord is, he just wants me to be quiet and mull these things over so he can reveal these things. And something hit me. And I'm not saying this is a revelation of the Spirit, but I wonder if he didn't show this to me so that I can better understand some of the depth of what John is talking about. Remember, John is talking about people who are mixing. They're bringing an unholy mixture into the church, and he's warning them. John was based in Ephesus. He had relationships with and wrote to believers and fellowships in Asia. And his concern in verses 10 through 11 sounds a lot like the unholy company of heretics among the church in Pergamos, Pergamum. Now, you could argue, well, that's true of some of the other letters to the churches in Asia, and I would agree with you. Again, I don't have time to go into this, but I wanna share this with you guys. And uh, if you guys have your two cents on this later, feel free to email me and text me. Don't expect a reply back really soon, but Revelation 2.12, go ahead and turn there. I want everyone to read this with me. Consider what we've been learning about this letter to the chosen lady and the things that John is warning the church. Verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, it's also called Pergamos. Pergamum is just an anglicized transliteration of the Greek word, which is Pergamos. He says, right, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this i.e. Jesus. Jesus isn't a baby in the manger. He has a two-edged sword. And he says, I know where you dwell, church in Pergamum, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which I just talked about a few minutes ago. There was a spiritual mixture happening in Pergamos. And another interesting thing, and I'm not gonna teach it because Rick already did, go online, go look up Rick's teaching on this, on this passage. He does a two-part teaching. Letter to the church in Pergamos, and then a PS, because Jesus ends with good news. All four except maybe one church. Wouldn't wanna be that church. Pergamos, though, has, if you look at it and break it apart in the Greek, has some really crazy implications regarding marriage. Does the church in this country face issues with marriage? They've given place to deceitful doctrines of demons, namely in the form of the Gnostic Nicolaitans, who took, who adopted and taught Balaam's teaching. If you want to know what Balaam's teaching is, I'm, I'm telling you here at the bridge, if you're new, we read the word. So if you want to know these things that I'm floating out, the point is not to study Balaam. 
and the ways of the Nicolaitans. The point is to know Jesus based on where we're at in Scripture. But if you want to understand these things better, go back and listen. Fortunately, we have these teachings online. So go back and listen. Go back to Numbers 31. There's a bunch of passages in the Old Testament that refer to Balaam to understand what this Balaam's teaching thing is. But John, or I'm sorry, Peter, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 11:4, for if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we've not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you've not received, or a different gospel which you've not accepted, you bear this beautifully. You, you not only tolerate, you give pulpit space to these people to come up and teach heretical things to the Corinthian church. And Jesus has strong words for the church in Pergamos. Verse 16, therefore repent or else. Jesus, Jesus gives an or else. I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. There's a line in uh, The Hobbit, the trilogy movie, not the book. And there's uh, this bowman from this humble city who's trying to remind the, the, the Lord of this hobbit fellowship who's now found their, reclaimed their home. And he says, come on, man, doesn't your word mean anything? You promised some of these riches to us because we helped you get this. And he says, what do you want, peace or war? And I love it when Richard Armitage says this. He thinks about it and he goes, I want war. <laughs> Sorry, I know, I'm just geeking out on you. You're like, where's he going with this? Sorry. Just sharing Jake with you. Now you can see the difference between Jesus and Jake. There's a big difference. Richard Armitage, what a great actor. Anyway, Jesus says, I will make war. Maybe the reason there's conflict in some Christians' hearts is because there's a war going on. Because I want some of the world, but I still want Jesus. Jesus didn't give part of himself. He gave all of himself. And he's calling us to a life of sanctification, which means day in and day out, we shouldn't be blending more of the world with Jesus. Jesus isn't about a blended marriage. Now, I'm not saying those who are in a blended marriage is bad. I understand. But Jesus' love is true and pure. And when he marries himself to you, it's all of him. So why can't we give all of ourselves to him? If there are things in your life that you know that you take part in, that you enjoy, and you realize, you know, I don't think this is something, if, if I was with Jesus, he wouldn't enjoy it. I would also remind us, Jesus is with you. His Holy Spirit is in you. He's with you. That means he's got, every, he's got to see everything Jake chooses to watch. He's got to listen to everything Jake chooses to listen to, which again, to me, blows me away that the God of the universe would choose to abide in this person because I'm not perfect. But more on a teaching about his grace and mercy another time. John's not saying we can't be hospitable to unbelievers. Make, let's make that clear. But Paul acknowledges this in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, you live in the world. If you're not ministering to, if you're not caring for, if you're not reaching out to the world around you, how could you be salt and light? He's not, speak, he's not saying you can't accept anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus. He's addressing again in 2 Corinthians 2.11 we can't be salt and light to the world if we're not willing to engage it. However, the people John and Paul address are those who claim fellowship in Jesus, yet promote and preach a different gospel, and therefore a different Jesus. 
our fellowship years back when we started out in the Gilmore's house experienced a satanic scheme. And I heard about it while I was listening to Rick's teaching on um, Pergamos in Revelation 2. There was a guy that came. Man, he sounded good. Les knows who I'm talking about. Donna knows who I'm talking about. They were there. I wasn't. He was really good in how he spoke. His wife was there with him, and apparently he had a protege that was writing all these things down as he came to share what God had revealed to him. And he wanted to become part of the bridge and really wanted the bridge to get behind him in this. And what Rick was saying in the teaching as he recalled this was, I walked away going, wait a minute, this guy didn't say anything about Jesus. And this guy went on for hours, not one mention of Jesus. How long do we go in our daily lives? Let's put the heretics aside. Those of us who really love Jesus, how long do we go every day without talking to Jesus or even talking about Jesus to someone else? Beware of Satan's schemes. Look at verse 12. Go back to 2 John. We're doing pretty good on time. Look at that. See, miracles do happen. Last point. Our affections reveal where we abide. Okay, I gotta say this. So, here's another story. <laughs> and I can't remember where, who it came from. It doesn't matter because the, the, the substance is what happened. There was a preacher, pastor, I think some Christian leader in the church who was talking with, it was on an airline flight, actually, I think, talking with, a, I think, a businessman from China, Chinese businessman who was an atheist and did not, had never heard the gospel, didn't know Jesus, which blows me away that there are people that are living like that right now. So if the Lord puts on your heart to go, please go. Just know the bridge will have your back. But he's talking with him, and the thing that blew this atheist Chinese man away wasn't what you and I would think what we think about how it blows. He didn't have a problem with God actually coming and putting on flesh, which is funny, because we hear that, right? The thing that blew him away is this God would choose to literally dwell within the heart and mind of every single person who believes in him. The infinite God dwelling in a human? What? That's huge. Again, our affections reveal where we abide. Verse 12, though I have many things to write to you, I don't want to with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face so that your joy may be made full. The children of your chosen sister greet you, which I believe he's writing from Ephesus, but we don't know. We would do well to take this page out of John's playbook. Don't address in writing, texting, emails, DMs, IMs. I wanted to make a joke about BMs, but I won't. What? Don't address in writing what you can discuss with someone in person. Face to face. Don't be like the world. Brothers and sisters, we're not the world. We've been called out of the world. We don't talk like the world. That doesn't just mean the words we use. That means the way in which we use the words. Jesus isn't content for our relationship to revolve solely around the written word. And I love what Les had said. He's a 
pastor's kid from Reformed Church, read the word. He knew he heard the word, had lots of that. But Jesus didn't come so that we could have a relationship with the Bible. This, this is holy written word. But this, this didn't die for me. We need to remember that. We don't worship ink on pages. We worship the one who wrote on these pages for us from his heart. Jesus isn't content for our relationship to revolve around the written word. So, if so, he wouldn't, he would not have sent his spirit to guide us, comfort us, and empower us. That's what Jesus promised in John 16. I'm not gonna leave you as orphans. He didn't then go say, I present the Bible to you. He said, I'm gonna send you the helper. See, if we don't fully embrace who Jesus is in his nature and therefore fully embrace what he teaches, we're not gonna fully embrace and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit who abides in us and has been with us. John's not content to just write him a letter. When we have issues or concerns with brothers or sisters in, in the fellowship, we're more careful with our words and we are gentler in our approach when we have to talk with them face to face. John's personal affection, John's personal affectionate approach is inspired by a true love. Uh, worship team, if you guys wanna come up, feel free to. 1 Thessalonians 2, 8, Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you have become very dear to us. If the Bible was all we needed, Jesus would have never come. If the Bible was all we needed, he would have never sent his spirit. John wasn't a theologian. He didn't study about God. He knew Jesus. He knows Jesus. This isn't theological theories. This is truth. This stands out through John's letter. Words and writing were not enough. He wanted to abide among God's people, which is why Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, I think is more pertinent for the church than ever before. Don't give up. Don't forsake gathering with the saints, which I'm preaching to the choir. You're all here. For those of you who are listening online, no judgment. Okay. I grew up with a dad who was most of my life what you'd call a shut-in, physically couldn't make it. So there's no condemnation for those who were in Christ Jesus. But John was not content to just write to the church. He wanted to be with the church because fellowship is family. Words and writing weren't enough. He wanted to abide among them. Jesus' affection reveals where he abides and desires to abide in us. Those who have not received him, let me fill you in, or rather, let him fill you in his truth, in his love. And for those of us who uh, have received Jesus as our Savior and Lord, this isn't religious obligation. It's relational abiding. Let him transform your affections into his. But we can't be transformed to be more like Christ if we won't abide first in his truth and love. I'll finish with this. 
John 15, 10, Jesus said this, if you keep my commandments, there's the truth, you will abide in my love. There's the affection. There's the true love. Just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I'm sorry, these things, he goes on and says, I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. That's what John wrote to the church. Our joy would be made full. So if you're lacking some joy, please feel free to come forward and we can pray with you, with you together. Um, Prayer team, if you wanna come forward. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for teaching us. And I'm so thankful that you did not just write to us. You came to us. You lived with us. You lived our human experience and then you died for us. That's the true love of God, which is in you, Jesus the Christ, the true Christ who's come in the flesh and is coming again in full bodily form. And you've given us that same power of resurrected life to be empowered by the Holy Spirit for every single person here who has received you, Jesus, as Savior and Lord. We love you and we thank you. And I ask that you would continue, Lord, to help us abide in you more deeply, more consistently, more faithfully so that we would bear fruit and and glorify you, Father, and bless those in our life around us. In your name, Jesus, amen.